0: A Planned Parenthood branch in Pennsylvania has demanded that Disney start giving its princesses abortions. Meanwhile, our friend Jordan Peterson seems to think that nobody would ever consider abortion a good thing. We will discuss with Faith Moore why everything not forbidden is compulsory. Then, the mailbag. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. Okay, so before we get into just absolute butchery and the totalitarian principle, let's talk about something nice and let's keep the lights on too. This is a really, excellent uh, product and a great sponsor. This would be Quip. Quip is wonderful. Look, all I do basically for my entire life is drink black coffee and smoke cigars. That is morning, noon, and night, except for when I'm getting my 16 hours of requisite sleep every day. That's what I'm doing. And uh, if you want to keep your teeth shiny, just like these lights that are staying on in in the studio, get Quip. Uh, When it comes to your health, brushing your teeth is one of the most important parts of your day. Quip knows that they've combined uh, combined dentistry and design to make a better electric toothbrush. You need an electric toothbrush. Do not just use like a stick or whatever you cavemen currently do for your old chompers. You need an electric toothbrush. It's much better for you. My dentist yelled at me when I wasn't using one. Quip is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of bulkier traditional electric toothbrushes. It also comes with a mount that suctions right to the mirror and unsticks, so it's a convenient case when you travel anywhere. Just pop it right off. Throw it in, throw it in your bag, you're good to go. And you don't need to use a stick when you're on the road, you can use an electric toothbrush. Quip's subscription plan refreshes the brush on a dentist recommended schedule, delivering new brush heads every three months for just $5. That ain't a whole lot including free shipping worldwide. It is a great plan. I, I would forget to use uh, to replace my toothbrush. I'd go uh, 17 or 18 years without doing it. That's disgusting. Don't you get on the subscription plan. Quip starts at just $25. If you go to getquip.com slash Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S, just like Jay-Z's wife, right now you will get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That is your first refill pack free at getquip.com. Slash Knowles, K N O W L E S. That is G-E-T, Q U I P dot com, slash K-N-O-W-L-E-S, D-O-I-T, R-I-G-H-T, N-O-W. Do it right now. Get quip.com slash Knowles. Okay. This is a, a tweet that came out recently from Planned Parenthood, the, the butchery in Keystone, Pennsylvania. The tweet reads: quote, We need a Disney princess who's had an abortion. We need a Disney princess who's pro-choice. We need a Disney princess who's an undocumented immigrant. We need a Disney princess who's actually a union worker. We need a Disney princess who's trans, which is a print That would make him a Disney prince. This is intersectionality at its finest. Intersectionality is the theory that we all need to gang up. Regardless of our own groups, we need to gang up to attack the white, straight male, who knows he's a male devil. Not, not just any white straight male because he could be trans. You gotta, there's just one bad guy and then the rest of us need to gang up and fight that guy. That's why it all comes in. Why, who cares about union workers in the Planned Parenthood tweet because it's this brilliant little ideology. It's an incoherent ideology, but it's brilliant because it unites all of the aggrieved groups, the allegedly aggrieved groups against the, the bad guy, which is the straight white man who thinks that he's a man. In the old days, you'd hear Louis Farrakhan yelling about the white devil. Now it's much more specific. It is a straight white man who thinks he's a man devil. Uh, the idea that we need to have a Disney princess who has an abortion is a big shift uh, that has happened recently in the view of abortion on the left. Uh, in the same week, we had this video come out from Jordan Peterson, who has said that abortion is clearly wrong and nobody would ever consider it a positive good. Here's Jordan. Abortion is clearly wrong. I don't think anybody debates that. You wouldn't recommend that someone that you love have one. Nobody debates that, says Jordan. But I don't know if he's saying this for rhetorical effect. It is clearly wrong. He's absolutely right. Nobody would seriously debate that. But plenty of frivolous people do debate that. They try to make it a debate, even though it obviously isn't. We know that people debate this. We know that some people pretend that it's a positive good and not just a bad thing. Uh, since Hillary Clinton, you know, Hillary Clinton used to say it should be safe, legal, and rare, right? Saying abortion's a bad thing, but whatever, we should tolerate it for some reason. We're way past that now. They can't handle that uh, cognitive dissonance. The Shout Your Abortion movement encouraged women who were sucked into this awful choice, this traumatic choice that in many cases ruins people's lives not just the lives of the kids, but the lives of the people who do it, now you have to pretend to be proud of that. Here's just the first uh, YouTube result that comes up when you look up the Shout Your Abortion movement.
1: My name is Sammy Detzer, and I had an abortion on May twentieth, two 2014. And uh, here are a list of things that happened on that day. I had a blueberry danish for breakfast, I walked from my apartment to the Madison Street Clinic. I received free healthcare from Apple Health on that day. I sat with my best friend in the waiting room while Let It Go by Adina Menzel played over the intercom. I took three Vicodin. I laughed really, really hard in the clinic. I cried really, really hard in the clinic. I had a small glass of orange juice in the waiting room afterwards. And I hugged the nurse who was there watching to make sure I didn't get sick. I ate an enchilada at the Mexican restaurant across the street. I took a three hour long nap. And then I went to rehearsal that night. And here are a list of things that didn't happen. I didn't feel sad, I didn't feel angry, I didn't feel hurt, I didn't feel abandoned, I didn't tell the person who got me pregnant, and I didn't look back.
0: It is so hard to watch that because everything about that second part is a lie, it's demonstrably a lie. You can tell, I mean, she's holding back tears in the video, and of course the question is who are you trying to convince? Who are you trying to convince with this? He, obviously you're looking back. That's the definition of what you're doing right now. Obviously you were sad. You you said that you cried and you're she's on the verge of tears even describing this. Obviously she was abandoned and alone. She had to hug the nurse, she had to hug a stranger. This the the amount of sympathy that anyone would feel for this woman is awful. The regret is pouring out of her pores. It's she, you can tell she doesn't believe it. She's trying to convince herself to believe these lies that she's saying. Notice in the beginning, she says, Here's what happened on that day. Everything she acknowledges that happened is material, it's all physical. She doesn't say, You know, I felt this, and then I thought about this, and then I had this idea, and I knew that this meant this. She doesn't. She says, I ate a Danish. Here, she says, I ate a Danish. I took a bunch of drugs because this is a horrible thing, and I knew it was a horrible thing, and I had, had to numb the pain, and then I ate a burrito. I, I ate, I drugged myself, I ate, I did this, I did. but there's no uh, metaphysical uh, experience. She's denying all of the metaphysical. She said, I didn't feel, I didn't feel this, I didn't feel this, I didn't feel this. Of course you did. You can't. The, the only way that you could get yourself to have an abortion is to deny the metaphysical to say this is just a clump of cells, right? It's not a person with a soul. It's not a baby. It's not a human. It's just material. And I ate the burrito and I took the drugs. It's really, I mean, you just feel so awful for this woman. And then to be used by the abortion movement, to be used and paraded on there and say, tell them it's a good thing. Oh, and hold back those tears. We don't want any tears in here. And tell them you're not looking back as you look back. In this issue there are two options, repentance or doubling down. You can change your mind. You can say that was a bad thing I did. I know people who've had abortions. You can change your mind or you can deny the reality. You can deny, deny, deny until you deny till you die is the Italian American expression. Deny it didn't happen. It didn't happen. You know how you know by the way. They talk about pro choice. The comments are disabled on this video. It tells you everything you need to know about pro choice pro-freedom, pro pro-choice, comments are disabled because they know what the comments would say. She, we know what her comments would be if she were speaking honestly, if she weren't, if she didn't have to hold back the tears. They, they, they have to make this a positive good. It's not enough to say abortion is an evil, but we have to tolerate it for some reason. It's not enough to do safe, legal, and rare, which is the old Hillary Clinton example. They have to move into the totalitarian principle as enunciated by T.H. White in The Once and Future King. He said, uh, everything which is not forbidden is compulsory. This is a play on the constitutional principle of English law. Everything which is not forbidden is allowed, right? That's what freedom is. Everything that's not forbidden is allowed. But the totalitarian principle, a a play on that is everything that's not forbidden is compulsory. That's the sign above the ant colony in the book. Totalitarianism cannot accept freedom. uh, Totalitarian frameworks, rather, are too fragile so the the framework of life the moral framework and the physical framework of totalitarianism cannot tolerate freedom. It's too disconnected from reality. There's a great line about the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, the future was always certain but the past was always changing. They would have to rewrite the past. They would have to rewrite what reality is because their fantasy, their delusion was absolutely certain. And when reality disagrees with that, reality has to be denied. People have to be erased out of history. The circumstances of history have to be changed. There's no room for freedom and there's no room for free thought. Absurd moral framework that, that permit abortion, they are too fragile to permit free thought. So you have to say, mm, I didn't, I didn't feel sad. Well, you just said you, you cried afterwards. Yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't feel sad. I, did, I wasn't alone. You had to hug the nurse. No one was with you. You were alone. You no, I, no, that's not true. I ate a Danish. I ate a Danish. I ate a burrito. I did. The, I, I'm not a moral being. I'm not a spiritual being. I'm just a. It's just physical. But no one believes that. You can tell she doesn't believe. Nobody believes. That's what Jordan Peterson is saying. There, there can be no disagreement tolerated on abortion. And the reason that the, the pro-abortion movement can't tolerate it is that any rational discussion of abortion shows that it is clearly wrong. This is Peterson's entire point. If you think about this for more than two seconds, you'll realize that it's wrong. So we can't permit that. It's just to have shout, shout your abortion. Don't reasonably discuss it. Don't think it through. Don't think it through for a second. Just shout it and do it and do it again and shout it. And You didn't feel what you know you felt. Just shout it, shout, shout over people. On this day in history in 1992, several hundred thousand people marched on Washington for abortion rights. This was really the, the last major gasp of the pro-abortion movement. There was another flare-up in 2005 protesting both Bushes, Bush 1 and Bush 2. Uh, other, other than that, other than those little flare-ups that, that come for pro-abortion, the March for Life, the March against abortion, is the longest continuous protest in American history. It grows every single year. Now it has presidential recognition. President Trump addressed the March for Life this year. The opinions have changed dramatically, and it's because we, because we have permitted freedom on this topic, as freedom has been allowed to expand, and the totalitarian principle has been ignored the opinion has changed in the direction of pro-life. I'll explain those numbers and explain why that happens. But before we do that, we have to, we have to thank another sponsor. We get to thank another sponsor. This is a sponsor that I personally love very much. I, I use all of the products that I get as little freebies, you know, because obviously Ben hasn't paid me in many months. I don't know if he's ever, he paid me for the bet on the election day. That's the last time. So yeah, I have to love bowl and branch. This is really good. This, this, you know, I, I am a guy who spends a lot of time in bed about 22 hours a day. And so it's really nice when you have high quality sheets. Uh, w- one thing we can all agree on is we need more sleep. Even I, I don't get 23. Sometimes I don't even get 24 hours. Getting a great night's sleep is easier and more affordable than you think. You don't need a new expensive mattress. You don't need sleeping pills. You just need to change your sheets. That's why you should check out Bowl & Branch. Everything they make from bedding to blankets is made from pure 100% organic cotton. That's why they start out super soft and they get even softer over time. Now, you can buy directly from them, so you're basically getting wholesale prices. I didn't know this because I would just sleep on sandpaper for most of my life. I'd go out behind the super store and just rip sandpaper out and whatever I'd sleep on. It was cheap, you know. But it turns out you can get really nice sheets, you know, that you get at really high-end hotels and things like that. Those sheets cost like $1,000 or or more. They can cost more than that. Boland Branch, you go directly to them. Those sheets are only a couple of hundred bucks. I mean, that is a really good discount. You cut out the huge luxury middleman. Uh, everyone who tries Bolin Branch loves them. That's why they have thousands of five-star reviews. Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Fast Company are all talking about Bolin Branch. Three U.S. presidents sleep on Bolin Branch sheets, and one best-selling author of a book that isn't really a book. Three presidents and one guy who didn't write a book. That's a good recommendation to get started. You can you can uh, get them shipping free. You can try them for thirty nights. If you don't love them, send them back for a refund. I know most of you guys who are listening and watching are living in a gutter somewhere. So you get 30 nights of sheets. That's pretty good. Do it. You'd have no risk whatsoever. To get started, go to uh, bowlandbranch.com, put in the promo code Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, and you will get $50 off your first set of sheets. That is, don't say I never did nothing for you. That is really good. Bowlandbranch.com today, $50 off your first set of sheets, B-O-L-L, and branch.com. Promo code Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. If you work at a coffee shop, you're probably going to spell that in many creative ways and flip all the consonants and the vowels. Promo code M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Okay, back into it. According to a Marist poll from the end of last year, the majority of women, the majority of American women, support making abortion illegal in 99% of cases. That's not what you'll hear on television. That's not what you'll hear on CNN. The majority of American women, 52%, according to this poll last year, say that women support making abortion illegal in all but rape, incest, life of the mother, in all but 1% of cases. They support that. So the the pro-abortion fanatics have to shout. They have to enforce their orthodoxy. Free thought is not allowed. They've become much more hysterical. Uh, It's it's something that uh, we have to hunker down. We're not allowed to uh, deal freely in these ideas. We have to gang up with other imaginary victim groups. They have to further divorce their own deluded visions from reality. To discuss that delusion, we will be joined by the official Michael Knowles show, Disney princess correspondent, Princess Faith Moore herself, who recently published an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal called Planned Princesshood. And coincidentally, on this day in history, Pocahontas married English tobacco planter John Rolfe in Jamestown, Virginia. Now, of course, if a Planned Parenthood and the feminists over at Disney had their way, she'd have just met John, Walsh, or John Rolfe and then had a, a one-night stand of casual sex and then gotten pregnant and then had an abortion. And then, and only then, would Pocahontas be empowered. But fortunately, that wasn't the case. Your Highness, Your Highness Princess Moore, thank you for being here.
2: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So why is Planned Parenthood specifically targeting Disney princesses?
2: Yeah, that's, that is the question. And the answer is um, Disney princesses are really influential. Little girls love princesses, and they love Disney princesses. And no matter how much the feminists in general have tried to stop them from loving princesses, they still love them. So now what they're doing, instead of saying, um, you know, don't love princesses, love lab technicians, love doctors, love, you know, uh, whoever, sports players. They're like, okay, well, that's not working. Fine. Now we're going to redefine what a princess actually is. Right. And, you know, now it's somebody who, you know, Play sports or fights with swords or has abortions. They're using the princesses as tools for propaganda because the, the girls love them so much.
0: So they say, we can't turn your attention to G.I. Joe or whatever, so we're just going to turn the princess into G.I. Joe. Uh, Disney exactly. princesses made it a long time before feminists tried to ruin them. They made them many decades. <laughs> what changed and when?
2: So uh, that's an interesting question. So the f- the first three... Princess movies happened under Walt Disney's watch, right? So they happened, you know, from 1939 up until around 1966, and that's when you get like Cinderella and Snow White and Sleeping Beauty, and then, um, and then there was what what they call the Dark Ages right? Disney died. They didn't make any princess movies. There were a lot of sort of really terrible movies and some good movies. Um, And then they came back with the Renaissance. And the Renaissance are the movies that we sort of think of when we think Disney, like The Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and all of those movies. Um, And and what happened when they were making those movies is that all of a sudden people were sort of starting to say like, you know, those earlier princesses, they were kind of you know, they were kind of damsels in distress. They sort of were sitting around waiting for men to come and save them. So we're going to update them. and But the reason that those movies are actually so good still is that they updated them but kept the trope of princess intact. And so in a fairy tale, and this this is what the feminists don't understand, in a fairy tale, the trope of princess means something. It's a symbol for sort of the, the feminine ideal. Like the, the perfect woman. She's not a real person. She's an ideal. Um, and everything in a fairy tale is really a symbol, you know, like the forest is a symbol for, you know, your inner turmoil and all of these things. Um, and so that's what a princess is. And so when those Renaissance movies came back, they updated um the princesses to make them more realistic, but they didn't take away the the sort of inner goodness of the princess, but they had that idea, that idea that like those other princesses are not okay and we need to somehow um, make them, make them better, make them feminists. And, and that pendulum just kind of kept swinging, kept swinging till it was like, it was sort of in the perfect place in Beauty and the Beast. And then it was like, "Uh, Jasmine's kind of annoying. And then, you know, then you get Pocahontas, Mulan. I know everybody loves Mulan. I'm sorry, but Mulan, um, you know, and then Merida, um, from Brave, princesses that are just basically, um, (laughs) just sort of tools for propaganda for a feminist ideology right. of what a
0: woman should be. And, and one of them was elected to the U.S. Senate. That, that, is, a, that is a real uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. accomplishment right. for Disney. <laughs> Clearly, it's worked in some ways. That issue of bringing down the ideal, uh, obviously, I've noticed this not just in Disney, but throughout culture, and I wonder how much of this has to do with the democracy of it all. Because we're a democratic culture, lowercase d, and we love, we talk, extol the virtues of democracy all the time. Princesses are, are literally aristocratic. They are the aristocracy. But the idea of the princess is the idea of the aristocracy. They appeal to aristocratic ideals, to nobility, to things that are above that which is common. Democracy does away with all of those things. Democracy is hostile to those things. How much of the degradation of Disney princesses can we simply blame on the hyper democratization, steamrolling over aristocratic ideals in our in our whole culture? We've lost you. This is the re- oh my gosh. I was, I'm on the edge of my seat. I want to hear about this and (laughs) we've, we got you, princess, you're back. back. I thought you were being stolen away by some evil villain and I was going to have to go through the woods and find you. I don't know. I haven't watched a lot of these movies. Do we have you back? No, you're gone again. This is really sad. I am going to have to go. I'm going to jump through the woods and I'm going to run, you know, with my sword and turn into a frog. And I don't know what happens in these things, but this is going to be my chance to save the princess. I'm going to get to put my money where my mouth is. Do Am I really just some paltry, you know, l- lowercase d Democrat in America, some commoner, or am I a virtuous knight, a virtuous prince going to save Drew's daughter? <laughs> Let's see, do, do we think we can get her back or no? Because I'm perfectly willing to give my, my view of all of this, my very elitist and aristocratic view. Do, Faith, do we have you?
2: Yeah, I'm back.
0: Oh, thank know. goodness. I was so <laughs> nervous that you had fallen asleep and, you know, we'd have, I don't know. Again, I, again. There was a I, lot
2: I don't know. There was some sort of evil witch or something, but I'm, I'm back.
0: I, I think it was the evil witch of feminism. Just the okay. evil ideal of feminism is going and attacking. Uh, my, my question is, How much uh, all of this has to do with the democracy of it all? You know, uh, princesses are aristocratic. They're literally the aristocracy. They appeal to aristocratic ideals, to nobility, things that are above the common level of culture. And democracy does away with those things. Our democracy does away with that. It's hostile to the elite, to the noble. Uh, How much of the degradation of Disney princesses can we blame on the steamrolling democratization, constantly trying to be more democratic, more equal, more egalitarian over what were once aristocratic and elitist ideals?
2: Well, I think what we're talking about is basically that um, we've forgotten that this idea of princess means something else. We think it means a princess, and that's when all the feminists get all up in arms about like, her tiara and her dress and, you know, and what that means to little girls. But that actually is, isn't the point. The point is really um, that a princess is sort of this high-born lady, like, the highest ideal of femininity and womanhood, and so when we start to think about it like that like oh she's really the princess and there's these like serfs and people th- that's that's not what it's supposed to be at all and i think but, but it is when we think about it like that um that we begin to sort of misunderstand it completely and move away from that ideal that's- that we're supposed to be kind of taking
0: it on. That's absolutely right. It was predicted by Edmund Burke and and others to to see that happening and yeah, very sorry to, to see that happen, but hey, at least we have VHS. We can watch Snow White, you know, that's kind of a cultural (laughs) observation in general. We can go retire to our country clubs and, you know, read all of the great books. That's right. Turn it off, smoke a cigar. There's always hope springs eternal (laughs) in the human breast. Princess. Your Highness, excellent to have you sure. here. I'm glad we were able to rescue you from the uh, feminist demons of Skype and uh, <laughs> let us know if you have any more uh, technological troubles, and we will go and ride in, on white horses and save you.
2: I will, I will come to you first. Thank you.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Good to see you, Faith.
2: Thanks for having me. Great to see you. Too. All
0: right. Let's try to get into the mailbag a little bit. I think we, have, we can do one or two questions, and then I have to say goodbye to those of you who are on Facebook and YouTube. First question from Spencer. "O oh, swarthiest of empty book writers, Knowles, you have said that you enjoy the music of Frank Sinatra and have quoted some of his songs on the show. What are your favorite Sinatra songs and albums? And what other types of music do you enjoy? Spencer. I do love Sinatra. I've had a Sinatra-esque fedora since I was like nine years old or something. When I was in fourth grade, I sang with my elementary school orchestra playing. I did uh, Young at Heart. I love Sinatra. I probably know every Sinatra song. One of my favorites is That's Life. You know, that's life. That's what all the people say. You're riding high in April, shot down in May because it's the most conservative song ever written, maybe other than Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson, but I love that. One of the greatest albums ever made in pop music is uh, In the We Small Hours by Sinatra. That's one of those moody things when you're driving along the highway, smoking a cigarette, feeling bad for yourself. You know, it's a kind of cloudy around you. That's a great A great album. Really, I guess the first concept album probably in pop music. As for other popular music, and by that I mean, I don't mean Kesha, I mean like post-World War I, all of the American Songbook, Dean Martin, uh, Nat King Cole, all those guys. Elvis, I love Elvis. I'm a profound Elvis fan. Some Motown, some soul. I have a soft spot for Van Morrison. Uh, In pre-pop music, I love Bach and Mozart and Haydn and Handel and all those guys for for even older stuff because we, we get very myopic in our culture. I talk about how conservatives are Philistines and, you know, even conservatives, but college kids today especially, they don't have any culture. They don't know of anything that happened before yesterday. They do think, they, I actually think that Tide Pods are the most delicious dessert in history. And they're very good, but they're not the most delicious. There are other creme brulee and things like that. So I, I, there's a great album on Spotify. If you want to go all the way back, basically some of the earliest music you can find. There is uh, Songs from the Time of the Crusades. <laughs> there's a good one called Upjoy et upjovens Mapies. Try that, and then you'll you'll get into like a very very old school sensibility. You'll start chanting. It'll it'll be very good for your mindset. Next question from Clay, Godfather of Troll. You often say <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that's quite a coincidence. You often say that some conservatives act like philistines. I'm not familiar with this saying. What does it mean, Clay? You proved my point, pal. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> Uh, Philistines, it means uh, they are uncultured or they don't like culture or they're hostile to culture. Uh, the the word came into common usage uh, after a confrontation between college students and the locals in Germany uh, in, I think, the, the 17th century. So right around that time when the university was getting very, very popular. Uh, this was from a, uh, it's from the Bible. You know, the, the Philistines are upon you. That's the quote. And it's like, you know, it's not just, you know, these crazy tribes trying to conquer the Israelites. It's saying, you know, you're so hostile to culture. It's like the barbarians at the gates. You don't, you don't uh, participate in this culture at all. So don't be a Philistine. Don't, it's good not to be a Philistine. We're all sort of Philistines because nobody reads books anymore, myself included. Only Andrew Klavan has read all the books. So it's good to try to diminish your Philistinism. Next, I'll try to do one more Then I got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. From Ben, I've noticed that you've made frequent references to the ancient Athenian historian Thucydides in your podcast, and at least once in your writings, (laughs) or not in my writings. What what you're referring to is that I dedicate reasons to vote for Democrats. I use the same introduction to that book that Thucydides did for his history of the Peloponnesian War. (laughs) I say this is not an essay to win the applause of the moment, but a, a contribution for all time, which is true. It was true for Thucydides. It's true of my magnum opus as well. Uh, The question goes on, I find his history of the Peloponnesian War fascinating and relevant to the modern day. You're probably familiar with how the Greek city-states created a coalition called the Delian League shortly after the Persian Wars based on the notion that they were strongest when united against Persia. Unfortunately, over time, that became dominated by Athens, became the Athenian Empire uh, that demanded tribute from member states, used military force to keep them in line. It was this tyranny against the Spartans that brought uh, on the Peloponnesian War. While I do not believe that modern supranational organizations like the EU have reached that level of malignancy of the Athenian Empire, I can't help but notice similarities. The one-state hegemony of Germany over the EU, the onerous taxes required by Brussels, the anti-democratic leanings of the EU, suggestions that they form an EU army, the populist backlash like Brexit. Does the work of Thucydides demonstrate that supranational organizations are doomed to fail? It does. It actually says more than that, though. And this is a very conservative idea, which is that you should keep the government as local as you can. The, the more local the government, the more responsive it will be, the better it will be, the freer that you will be. You have to be very careful. But now, the lesson from the Thucydides, from the Peloponnesian War, is not that supranational organizations are bound to fail. It's that even national organizations right that thucydides would have said that you keep it in the polis in in just the city state because you know the the athenian empire united not even all of greece just part of greece athenian imperial democracy wasn't supranational it wasn't even national so you have to be very careful this could apply to national organizations or even regional or organizations too Uh, We we have to be very careful with these organizations. Some supranational or international organizations have worked out well. NATO has worked out well, certainly in the 20th century. Some have not worked out well, like the European Union, which has been mostly a spectacular failure for uh, national sovereignty and for culture. And, uh, you know... Like, Germany is the worst country in the history of the world. I'm going to have to do a whole show on this from the fall of Rome to the present. But, you know, they tried to destroy the world once in the 20th century. We beat them. They tried to do it again 20 years later. We beat them. And then we gave them control of Europe. And they've done it again. Uh, Surprise, surprise. Uh, We have to be very, very careful of these and use them for very specific purposes. When you have these supranational organizations that just are there, they're just peering and watching you and just kind of encroaching more and more on your liberty, get rid of them. That's no good. I've got to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. I'm sorry. That's what I have to do. If you're at dailywire.com, thank you very much. You help us keep the lights on here. We actually just had an earthquake here before the show. So hopefully no equipment was damaged. If it was more of you have to go over and subscribe, that'd be very nice. What do you get? It's $10 a month, $100 for an annual membership. You get me, you get the Andrew Clavin show, you get the Ben Shapiro show. None of that matters. You get Andrew Clavin on the conversation. That's going to be a really good one. That's coming up. You'll obviously you can ask questions in the mailbag. Everybody can listen to the questions, but only members can ask those questions. Many are called, but few are chosen. None of that matters. The leftist here is Tumblr. When that earthquake just happened right before our show, I assumed it was a a loud national groaning and screaming and wailing of, and gnashing of teeth because I was going to talk about how awful abortion is. And the first thing I reached for, I didn't try to protect the producers. I didn't even try to protect my own life. I just grabbed the Leftist Tears tumbler. I knew that this would be the key because when the deluge comes in, that, that, that earthquake happens, and then the tsunami of Leftist Tears engulfed me, I just hold this right in front of my face. I catch them all, and I can protect myself. You need to protect yourself and your family too. Go to dailywire.com. We'll be right back with more Mailbag. Next question from Nathan, Michael, I think you are right about the silent majority in the short term, but your justification proves Ben right. Nixon's silent majority turned on him after the Tet offensive, thanks to commie Cronkite, as you point out. They are flakes who scatter To the wind at the first sign of trouble. Ben correctly stayed true to conservative values over temporary electoral power. What good is a Republican Congress of conservatives who aren't true conservatives with a capital T and a capital C and a trademark sign above them? So I think what we're debating once again is the election of Donald Trump uh, where I said it was a good idea to do it. Uh, we should, conservatives should take what we can get. And, uh, and other conservatives said, no, he's just too awful. I can't lend him my support. I think I'm right about this. I still think I'm right about this. You're right that uh, the Reagan Democrats, as they were once called, or the silent majority, as Richard Nixon called them, or the Trump Democrats, the, tr- the populist people, as Trump would refer to them. They, they are not conservatives. They don't share our political views entirely. They're not certainly not ideological, and they join coalitions with us for, for many good reasons, by the way. Many good reasons that conservatives might want to take a look at, like the preservation of tradition and uh, common sense it, b- beyond uh, theory. Very often, the, the Reagan Democrats of the silent majority are people who say, yeah, your theory is fine, but Let's look at reality and then the ideological people say, who cares if it works in practice? Does it work in theory? Uh, in, In the long term, we're all dead. There was a fear that if we elect this person or support this person, then 40 years from now, something bad will happen politics doesn't happen in the future. Politics happens in real time. Politics is things that happen in the real world. And it, it doesn't happen like it happens in philosophy books. It happens in real time and space. We should take the wins that we can get because you, you say that uh, we, the Trump voters have been proven wrong. You say that the people who didn't vote for Trump have been proven right because of some big budget. There was an omnibus budget bill that went through that Trump said he didn't like very much. Well, okay, but let, let's look at the other side. If the people who didn't vote for Trump, who said we shouldn't vote for him because he's too yucky and uh, we don't like him, if they had their way, we would have... Much more abortion. We would have no Mexico City rule. We would have no. Uh, we would have the Obamacare mandate. We would have massive regulation as opposed to the massive deregulation that we've had. We would have a a radical Supreme Court justice that Hillary Clinton would have appointed, who would have gutted the First and Second Amendments as she promised in her campaign. We would have had more uh, weakness overseas as we had for the last eight years, that Hillary Clinton was personally involved in, by the way, when she was Secretary of State. We would have had, uh, who knows in the future, what, what would have happened with the federal courts, because it's not just the one place on the Supreme Court. Donald Trump has stacked the court with uh, federal judges. We'd have no uh, tax, tax reform. We would have uh, pro- perhaps higher taxes. Uh, we would. It goes on and on and on and on. And people say, yes, well, okay, those are some victories. Okay, Heritage Foundation says this has been the most conservative first year in the history of modern politics. Okay, if President Trump has enacted two-thirds of our agenda, but you know what about 10 years from now? What about a big budget? Come on, man. This is reality. The Deal in reality. Politics is reality. And uh, if you say, well, I don't want to have a huge swath of the American population, the silent majority or the Reagan Democrats, I don't want to be associated with them because I don't agree with them on everything okay, good luck, you know, go, go vote for the libertarian candidate or the Green Party candidate or whatever, and I hope you feel very proud of yourself and very morally pure. But that that doesn't do very much for the country. doesn't do any good for the country. And Lord Acton put it very well. He said, at all times, the friends of liberty are few. They achieve their ends. I'm paraphrasing. He said it much nicer than I did. They achieve their ends by associating with auxiliaries whose goals differ from their own. And this involves a lot of moral risk. You, ha- you have to risk your own integrity and your own morality by supporting someone who isn't perfect, obviously isn't perfect, is eminently imperfect. But that's the only way to achieve political good in a liberal democracy. That's the only way to achieve anything. And I'm, I'm more than willing to do it, and I think conservatives should do it too. I think conservatives ought to be less rationalistic and less ideological and less worried about, if it works in theory, Who cares if it works in practice, and and they should deal in in realities, Uh, and and I think we're seeing that bear out. Is President Trump doing things that we don't like? Yeah, of course, that budget was really awful, it's really terrible. Why he hasn't defunded Planned Parenthood, why the congressional Republicans haven't defunded Planned Parenthood is beyond me, but it's better than the alternative, it's a lot better than the alternative. A lot of good things are happening, and uh, you should keep that in mind, and not let the perfect get in the way of the good. Next question from Sean. Michael, which left-wing media sources do you think are the least reliable in reporting the facts? Yes. I think that's my answer. Washington Post is particularly awful these days. It used to be fine, or relatively fine, but the Washington Post, as you know, is where democracy dies in darkness. I'll single them out because the lies that they espouse are in the language that they use. It's in the language itself. So obviously, the editorial staff picks ridiculous stories. They only pick stories that will attack Trump. They don't uh, pick any stories that will support his narrative. Excuse me. But the language they use, they, they use the phrase, uh, not just illegal immigration, which is a ridiculous phrase. To be an immigrant, you have to be accepted by a country. You can be an immigrant or an illegal alien or a resident alien, but they're not immigrants. But they use it to conflate Uh, legal immigrants from illegal aliens. So they'll say, immigration does this. Trump is bad for immigrants. Trump isn't bad for immigrants. Trump is perfectly fine for people who immigrate to this country and observe our immigration laws. He's, He's a little harsh on criminals. That's a different thing. That's not an immigrant. That's a criminal. And so when you read them, it's very hard, unless you're very precise with your language, very careful with language. It's hard not to get sucked in by the facts because bad language gives away whole premises. I'm doing a video for PragerU that's coming out soon on this very topic. Uh, That's why I think they're particularly bad, but they're all ridiculous. It's worth reading them all to see what they're thinking and to, to get a different perspective. And then you, within about seven seconds, I think, can knock down that perspective and say it's completely ridiculous. From Ryan, come on, Michael, come on. Your history of Protestantism is a bit slanted. There were radical reformers, of course. Luther and the Wittenbergers, uh, however, never sought to leave the church. Luther was excommunicated in ex-surge domine in 1520. Still 10 years later, Melanchthon's uh, Augsburg Confession made it clear that the desire that, one, a council be called to resolve their issues, and two, that it be done so all of us can accept and preserve a single true religion. This, too, is argued because the Turks must be opposed by a unified Christendom. See the preface to the Augsburg Confession. The Lutheran polity, in turn, was never formalized like the Calvinist polity. That's because the Lutherans allowed princes to function as emergency bishops, and they only allowed this to occur when Rome refused to give the German churches priests. The German... The Breakaway churches, priests. Lutherans were not iconoclasts like the Reformed. Lutheran liturgical reforms were in fact quite conservative. Now I'm under no whitewashed illusions about some of the flaws in Luther and some of the atrocities committed by Protestants later on. Some of his later writings in particular make Trump's rants sound tame, (laughs) but it's also wrong to characterize the Lutheran Reformation as radical. If you're interested, my dissertation examines the theology of the body in light of Luther's a paradigmatic distinction. I, all right, I'll read that later. I don't need to read that on the show. <laughs> Check it out. I absolutely will read it because I am I am very interested in uh, these questions in this time period. I am very hard on Luther. Luther is radical because he cracked Christendom. That's why I attack Luther as being, and because he sucked up to the Muslim invaders. Th- those are the reasons I'm hard on Luther. I'm, I'm really not hard on Luther for his theology because his views were almost exactly the same as the Catholic views. He believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. He believed in the Immaculate Conception of Mary. He believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. He believed in the sacraments. And for that matter, Zwingli and Calvin also both believed in lots of these things, the perpetual virginity of Mary. Uh, virtually everybody believed in that from the first century through very, very modern times. They, they accept that as clearly implied by scripture. So, yeah, I am a little harsh on Luther, um, but, you know, there are some things that can be said for the guy that can't be said for his followers. The real problem is that he cracked Christendom. That's what uh, Hamlet's about. And so that is a tough one to get over. But all in all, he's better than a lot of other people. What's worth pointing out here, I think, is that all heresies, all breaks from the church, this occurred to me the other day, they all seem to try to get rid of mystery mysteries that they can't really tolerate. So these days, uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of breakaway churches or very modern churches, they don't accept the perpetual virginity of Mary because it just is hard to make sense of. They, they can't accept the Immaculate Conception. Early on in the church, there was the Arian heresy. That was the one that denied the divinity of Christ because they, they couldn't understand how Christ is holy God and holy man that they can't resolve that mystery. It's not a puzzle to be solved. It's a mystery. It's a holy mystery that tells us something about the faith and about God and about ourselves. The Albigensian heresy, which came later, uh, basically denied the body. It said that only the spirit was good and the body was utterly depraved and awful and evil, and we have to reject it and be ascetic uh, and because it couldn't resolve that we are spirits, but we have a corrupted body. It couldn't resolve the mystery of the unity of man. So they had to reject that. A lot of others have followed from that. Islam takes similar issues. They couldn't resolve how God is God and dies on a cross. So they deny the cross. Christ, They crucified him not is a line from the Quran, and St. Paul writes about this. He says, many are walking now, and I tell you, even weeping, who deny the cross of Christ. The, a lot of modern people have issue with the sacraments. They can't understand how the physical and the metaphysical touch. It, that mystery is too much, and you can't resolve it. It's a mystery. It's not a puzzle to figure out. It's a mystery that tells you about your faith. I think this is what all heresy comes from, and I'm, I'm not really accusing Luther of this. Luther didn't have trouble, really, with, with some of those mysteries other than the guy sitting on the throne in Rome. He had trouble with uh, that, that mystery of authority. But I think when we're considering questions of faith and religion, if you, if you find yourself trying to come up with an easy answer to mysteries of faith, you're probably going the wrong way. As Dr. Johnson pointed out, all shallows are clear. From Craig. Hi, Michael. Do we have time for We have time for like one or two more. Hi, Michael. I've been smoking a cigar for a few months And I hope not the same cigar, even probably smoking cigars generally. As you say, the body is a temple and the temple needs incense. What cigars would you recommend that I can get at a local shop? Thanks, Craig. One I've been smoking lately that's very good is the Davidoff Escurio Gran Perfecto. It's overpriced, but it's very delicious. That has an Ecuador Habano wrapper, Brazilian binder, Brazilian and Dominican filler, and it's rolled in the Dominican Republic. That's a good one. I smoked a really nice new cigar last week in New York at the Cigar Inn. Can't remember the name now. Sorry, that's new. it's one of these new boutiques that's come out. And the Nat Sherman Timeless is really good. You can now get it other places, and it's an excellent cigar. Fuente Grand Reserve is very good. I've been smoking a lot of Tetuaje Cajonu 2006. Excellent. If you're just starting out, if you're not totally into it yet, and you want a good cigar on a budget, Oliva V is great. My father, Nub, Kane, can't go wrong. Let's do one more. We'll get one more, and we'll close it. Cut it for the day. Bradley. Hi, Michael. You and Claven are always talking about the culture and that conservatives generally do not do well on that political front or that cultural front, rather. My question is, what can the average Joe do to help shift the culture toward conservatism? Particularly, what can a 30-some-year-old cigar smoker history teacher do? Hmm, interesting. Please don't tell me that I have to start watching Roseanne or the Kardashians. Haha, <laughs> love the show. Thanks, Brad. You're in the perfect place. You are in the ideal place. You don't have to watch the Kardashians. You don't even have to watch Roseanne. I kind of like Roseanne, but you don't have to watch it. You're in the perfect place because the culture is formed in those schools. And you're teaching a highly politicized uh, subject where uh, the, the left has succeeded in the culture because they invaded all of the schooling, all of the universities, and even younger, and Hollywood and New York. So you have the whole culture. You are in a prime spot, especially teaching history. You should teach true history. You should not be afraid to ignore people like Howard Zinn, which Mitch Daniels as head of Purdue and as governor of Indiana called his ridiculous revisionism execrable. You should teach true history. You should teach that Christopher Columbus was a great man and a great devoted explorer who founded our civilization. You should teach that the founders and framers of the United States were great men wonderful men who uh, formed the greatest, freest, most prosperous charitable country in the history of the world, who were much smarter than we are today, who were much better educated than we are today. You should teach that. You should teach the true history of science. The history of science is totally ignored. Uh, people think that science just floats in, in the air somewhere. It just popped up one day. You should teach the uh, religious underpinnings and the religious premises that are required by science and the profound piety and... Uh, Western culture of the people who founded science, like Francis Bacon and Isaac Newton. Uh, You should should teach all of those things fearlessly because there is an awful movement of historicism and schools of resentment that want to hate our forebears, that want to spit on the shoulders of giants. But we shouldn't spit on the shoulders of giants. We're not giants ourselves. We're dwarfs standing on the shoulders of giants. Maybe we can see a little further. It's only because of those guys. I would teach a a grateful history and an accurate history, and you'll be doing the Lord's work. Okay, that's our show. Try to survive the weekend. I know Drew is not only not here, but he's on the road. The show, try to survive. In the meantime, speaking of Drew, you can listen to Another Kingdom, which is his... A story that he wrote that I perform all the characters in. You can get that wherever fine narrative podcasts are downloaded. In the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. I will see you Monday. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire forward publishing production. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jessua Overa. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.